0: So in the days heading up to this retreat, just like probably all of you, I was thinking ahead to the retreat, preparing for it, uh, reflecting on what I'd like to share with you um, as we come together for this really deep period of practice. As I said at the beginning of the retreat, such a rare opportunity to come and practice in this intensive way for so long. And so thinking what would be helpful to share and the thing that kept coming to me was to talk about the Four Noble Truths which we always do on on virtually any retreat because it's such a central teaching but often we only give one talk on it Um, and I think that's really short shrift to such a potent teaching because there's so much in this teaching on the Four Noble Truths so uh, and it's such an essential teaching Um, And, you know, often we get to, you know, we barely get through the three noble truths, and then there's the fourth noble truth, which includes the Eightfold Path, which in and of itself you could do months of teachings on, because it's this description, not just of our practice, but how we live our lives. And that's often, well, there's that too. So I thought, why don't I give a whole series of talks on this? And I don't know how many it will be to go through, but to, to really go into these teachings and look at them from from uh, a, a more settled place, uh, really uh, acknowledging their power. As Ajahn Semedo says, that great uh, monastic, he's now uh, in, I don't know if monastics can retire. He hasn't retired as monastic, but he's certainly retired from his worldly duties as abbot of uh, the Amravati monasteries, living now in Thailand. But he's always said that the, if we only could keep or need, could have one teaching, the Four Noble Truths would be it, because they contain all of the other teachings. You can find all of the other teachings and all of the understanding of the Dharma through this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So very important. And often, if you hear kind of a synopsis of Buddhism or what's Buddhism all about, you'll hear people say, Oh, the Four Noble Truths, that's what the Buddha taught that's what it's about. So very central, very important. Uh, The first teaching that the Buddha gave was about the Four Noble Truths. So he considered it important too. So I had that idea. It was a good idea. I felt good about it. But then I realized that would mean my first talk would be a whole talk on dukkha, (laughs) on suffering. And I thought, that's kind of a bummer, isn't it? That, you know, the first time I talk to you, all I talk about is suffering. So I was going, Four Noble Truths, really good. Suffering, mmm. But the more I reflected on the First Noble Truth, which is the truth of suffering, the truth of dukkha, I realized I wasn't suffering in that. What it brought up very immediately and every time my mind turned to it was this kind of tenderness. Because I just felt the power of that truth. It is true that there is suffering. And suffering is the proximate cause for compassion or tenderness. And that was what came again and again and again. This is not a talk, and my intention is not to give a talk that's a bummer, you know, that's, oh my gosh, everything's suffering. Because the Buddha didn't say that. He didn't say life is suffering or everything is suffering. He said there is suffering. So it brings up that tenderness. And I also saw that um, to talk about this would be to talk about the, the fact or the realization, the insight, that most of the time we cause most of our own suffering. You know, yeah, there's unavoidable suffering, as Sylvia Borstein always says, pain is inevitable, but suffering is off- optional. So there's the kind of pain, I'll talk about that, that just happens in any life. But if you look at our direct experience, so much of the time we're causing our own suffering. So just starting to really point to that, and to see you know, ways that the, the very opening to suffering, talking about suffering, inquiring into suffering, is actually, as the Buddha said again and again, to talk about not suffering. As soon as you talk with any uh, uh, sense of wisdom or insight or understanding, dhamma view of suffering, you're immediately talking about not suffering. Because we do have that wisdom. It, it's not something that we need to be taught. If you grab a burning coal, no one needs to say, hey, you should let that go, that'll burn. You you let it go. And so it's the same when we start to contemplate and open to this truth of suffering. The wisdom is there of what's needed to resolve this conundrum, this, uh, this predicament we find ourselves in about Suffering and the truth of suffering. And so we really start to see that actually turning to suffering, understanding suffering is important. Ajahn Chah has this great phrase there's the kind of suffering that leads to more suffering, and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. I hope to be talking about the latter kind of suffering tonight. But the suffering that leads to more suffering is when we resist it, when we're lost, confused, caught, identified, reactive, aversive, whatever, and then we can just get lost and create more suffering. The suffering that leads to the end of suffering is this uh, important movement to suffering being a doorway, suffering being the beginning of the path, of the, the path to freedom, Suffering is also important, impactful, because it's the proximate cause for compassion. And as I said, even as I just was contemplating suffering, not I wasn't suffering myself, there wasn't anything going on in my life, it brought up this compassion. Suffering is the proximate cause for compassion. So from both of these angles, it just felt good or right to talk about suffering. And it's also, you know, as as soon as you talk about it, as I said, you implicit in it, if you're doing it in a dharma view, is the end of suffering. So freedom is right there as soon as you start to turn to suffering with some wisdom. So the first noble truth is part of the four noble truths. Um, Many of you know these teachings, these very brief, pithy statements about the cause of suffering and the ending of suffering. And all of the Buddha's teachings can be seen as coming out of these teachings, this teaching. The Buddha has this famous line where he says, formerly as now, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Basically what he teaches, suffering and the end of suffering. I recently read a book by Richard Gombrich, who's a, a British scholar, Buddhist scholar, an academic. I don't know if he practices that much, but he has a, you know, a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding and, and insight into the Buddha's teachings. He wrote a book called What the Buddha Thought. And it's a whole inquiry into the times of the Buddha and the philosophies that were around at his time, what he absorbed from the philosophies of the time and what was unique to his thinking. But uh, Gombrich thinks that the Buddha is totally undervalued as a philosopher, as a great thinker. And this is what he says. So the Buddha belongs in the same class as Plato and Aristotle, the giants who created the tradition of Western philosophy. I think that his ideas should form part of the education of every child the world over and that this would help us to make the world a more civilized place, both gentler and more intelligent. Go, Gombrich. Because it's true, you know, if, imagine getting any aspect of these teachings when you were younger about the cause of suffering, about compassion, about mindfulness, about developing wholesome states of mind, really very, would be amazing. And it amazing. It is happening. I mean, mindful schools here in the Bay Area is really very vibrant and uh, reaching out to all over the planet even. So it is happening. Not necessarily the Buddha's teachings, but mindfulness. But the Buddha wasn't just a philosopher, certainly not a speculative philosopher, sitting back and stroking his chin and pontificating on, on the, the world. He was a pragmatist. As he said, I, he, all he was interested in was suffering and the end of suffering. So his teachings were all about that, not just uh, you know idle speculation on the nature of the world, the Buddha is actually often depicted as a doctor, as a physician, as a healer, where he would diagnose an illness or a problem and then offer a cure a way out of that problem. And so you can see this uh, dynamic happening in his teaching of the Four Noble Truths, uh, where you know, he diagnoses the problem or the illness, in this case suffering, and so the first noble truth is there is suffering. And then he diagnoses the cause. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering is tanha, craving, so cause, it's a effect, cause, effect, cause. The third noble truth is there is a way out of suffering. And what's the cause for that? What's the, the support for that way out of suffering? The fourth noble truth, which is the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya, ethical conduct, uh, meditation practice, and wisdom. So this this very practical advice, looking at the human condition, the human situation, and offering us a way out. So he says, and the second noble truth is, the cause of suffering is craving, is tanha. But if you actually look closer or start to investigate your own experience, I think you might find that what the Buddha was actually saying is that craving is suffering. It's not that one, they're separate things, but they're inextricably linked. That craving is suffering, and I'll talk more about that in the next talk on craving, just the actual felt experience. We're seduced by it. We think craving gets us what we want, but to actually look at the felt sense, it's suffering. And we're so used to thinking that getting what we want will bring us happiness if we just tried hard enough. And the fact that we're not as happy as we should or could be yet means we haven't grasped on enough. We haven't gotten the right thing. We haven't held on tightly enough. And it's amazing how that belief can propel us endlessly through life, how it does that for most people. But as practitioners, we've started to challenge that belief. We've probably seen for ourselves that that's not true, that this force of desire convinces us that there's something out there. But we've seen for ourselves that there actually isn't, that there isn't anything out there that can give us the happiness that we're looking for, that that refuge that the Buddha spoke about, that ultimate kind of happiness. And it's not to deny that there isn't certainly, not to deny that, there isn't hap- that there's happiness in life, of course there is, and we want to cultivate happiness. The, the point of a life is to deepen in our capacity for happiness and well-being, but not this artificial or superficial happiness. And often the fleeting happiness that we feel in getting what we want, whether it's an experience or an object or a job or whatever it is, is not so much the object, but the ceasing of the desire, the ceasing of that craving. And we start to see that as practitioners. And how immediately, whether that's in seconds, minutes, or hours, or days, the desire moves on to something else. And whatever we have is old news, not, no longer giving us that source of satisfaction. So to start to see the very experience of craving as being unsatisfactory, as, a, as suffering itself. And so as practitioners, we start to look at this experience directly. Suffering here and now, craving here and now, not as some abstract idea or philosophy, but actually as something we can understand and learn from. And so this trun- this shift can happen from, excuse me, the four noble truths being this list that we believe if we're good Buddhists. So I know the four noble truths. I have them in my pocket. I can pick them up and read them out, and you know I know them. That doesn't help us so much. It might help us a little bit, but to shift to where the four noble truths become practices, in the moment practices then they're really freeing. Then they really are a doorway to freedom. And this is what is possible and what we can do in our practice. So the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. As I said, the Buddha didn't say everything is suffering. He said there is suffering. There is this noble truth of dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word. And I'll often use... Just that word, dukkha, because even though we commonly translate it as suffering, suffering doesn't cover the full range of meanings and experiences that are dukkha. Dukkha covers experience from the deepest sense of pain and loss and grief and despair to the subtlest sense of unsatisfactoriness the subtlest, vaguest sense of not-okayness that we can feel, and everything in between. So we can translate it as suffering. Some people like unsatisfactoriness or unreliability or anguish or stress. All of these kind of point to what the Buddha is talking about, this truth of suffering. And we don't have to look very far to see it, do we? Maybe, you know, not so long ago or even right now, that there's an experience of suffering of some kind. We certainly see it every time we open a newspaper or look on the internet, and we were just bombarded by images and stories of suffering through natural disasters, through wars, through famine, through accidents, through cruelty and inhumanity, through all the forms of prejudice and injustice and hatred that exists in the world, the heart can just ache with the power, the, the, the extent of that, the breadth and depth of that. And then, of course, there's our own inner experience of suffering, suffering of the body and its aches and pains. I'm sure you're all very familiar with that. You probably came in feeling chipper and a few days of sitting, crunch time. You know, it's hard on the body to do this. So really to have compassion for this body that's carrying you through these days sitting and walking and kind of be gentle with it as it complains a little about that. It gets easier. For most people, we kind of get used to the muscles we need, but the body really makes itself known. We're asking it to do something pretty unusual to sit in this extended kind of way. But then, of course, the biggest suffering is in the mind, isn't it? the mind, all of our afflictive emotions, the hindrances and our reactions to the hindrances and then we're judgmental of our reactions and then the shame about that and then the fear of not doing it right and the comparing and the more judging and the loneliness and the fear that comes up. It's really hard, it's really hard. We feel it all. And even on this more subtle level, many of you may have felt this, this thread of unsatisfactoriness that can weave through a life, of knowing, of yearning for some sense of truth or love or wholeness or unity, however you might conceive of that, and not finding it, not knowing even how to find it, that sense of limitation. So all of this is suffering. It's really important not to measure or judge suffering. That mine isn't, you know, as much as someone else's or mine is more than someone else's. Really not so helpful. Suffering is suffering. If the mind is suffering, the body's suffering, just that's suffering. We don't have to compare or evaluate, but just really have it open this inquiry and certainly open us to compassion we start to look at all of the strategies we've used to try to find happiness. You know, if you just do this kind of life review that often happens on retreat and all of the different cells you've created, mainly to try to get some happiness, to push suffering away. And you've seen inevitably temporary. You know, our strategies haven't ultimately worked. And so again, as practitioners, we've turned to the Dhamma. We've heard something in the Dharma that felt like the truth, felt like a possibility for addressing this conundrum, this, this difficulty, this challenge of suffering. And so we, we know that we, uh, we have faith, perhaps at times, that this is the path to the end of suffering and all of our other strategies are not it. And so this brings the question of why is it noble? Why is it noble suffering? The noble truth of suffering. Suffering doesn't seem so noble. It sucks, you know, it's hard. But it's noble if it brings us to practice, as it's probably done for pretty much every one of you. Even if you came out of curiosity, you probably suffered once you got here. Um, (laughs) Once you started to look at your mind and your body started to ache. Uh, so, for all of us, so if it brings so many of us to practice, and it's also suffering when we find a path in it, this is the important thing when it's the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering, even if you know we might still be suffering, but we've had suffering in we know this path, and we know we can know that we're on on the path, and so this is where it shifts to being practice rather than just a philosophy or a belief. Each of the um, four noble truths has three aspects to it. Uh, They have a main, a central practice and kind of some reflections. So for the first noble truth, the first aspect is just the statement, there is suffering. There is suffering in life. In every life there is, there will be suffering. The second aspect, aspect. The second facet is suffering should be understood. So that's our practice. That's what the Buddha is inviting us to do, suggesting that we do if we want to know the end of suffering. We have to understand suffering. Talk more about that. And then the third aspect is, it's more of a reflection. It's a culmination. Suffering has been understood. Each of them is important, obviously, to really recognize and acknowledge the truth of suffering, that it's universal. I'm not the only one here suffering. My suffering is not greater or less than other people's suffering. I mean, you know, and sure, there are people really struggling, but not to evaluate, we all have suffering. There's that uniqueness to every life, animal, human, whatever, all creatures suffer. And that's inevitable. If we're not suffering now, at some point, there will be suffering through grief, through loss, through pain, through illness, through death. The Buddha said, this comes, with birth comes death, comes suffering. And as we reflect on this inevitableness, we start to understand that it's not wrong to suffer. doesn't mean we've got it wrong. We haven't figured it out. Everyone else has figured it out and I'm here suffering. So we start to surrender a little, accept. That suffering should be understood. I love the definition of understand, to stand under like a waterfall. There's just a surrender to that. And again, it's not that we immerse ourselves in suffering, create more suffering, be miserable. But just that surrender that says, yes, there is suffering. Life is difficult. Life is challenging in all these different ways and we don't tense up against it, that standing under and just accepting. And we know it for ourselves, this suffering. And again, you can use this in your practice, it's so helpful. You know, sometimes we talk about pain or the knee is aching or the hindrances or whatever, and recognize them as afflictive or obstacles. But to say this, this is suffering. This tormented mind, this aching knee, this loss, this sense of shame, this is suffering. Really wise. And it opens something us in us Something relaxes or releases a little because we're naming a truth. Sylvia Borsty, my dear friend and colleague, she's so great about this. She'll say to herself and she'll offer to all her students just to say, oh honey, this is really hard. You know, this is dukkha. Hmm. You know, and just to feel that sense of acknowledging the compassion, the tenderness is there as we open to this suffering, whatever it is you know, uh, just the suffering of being hungry or lonely or aching. This is dukkha. And so we can do that in our mindfulness practice, as well as noticing a thought or a sensation. We can also say, oh, this is suffering. This right here is suffering. And as we, uh, look to understand suffering, of course we start to understand how suffering is caused. They're inextricable. The understanding of suffering leads us to get curious about suffering. This suffering, not in abstract, you know, abstract cause of suffering is cravings, like yeah, but this suffering, this suffering right here. So it, it, it engages us with suffering. Again, we're not resisting it, we get curious about it and then suffering has been understood. Now, when the Buddha talked about this uh, in his his discourse on it, he was saying, I have understood suffering and have come to the end of suffering. The, The understanding of it has been so powerful, it has uprooted the tendency to suffer. We may not get there yet on this retreat, but we have moments of it, right, of just seeing how we were really caught in something and that we could let go. And it is this affirmation of faith, not blind faith believing in some external system or person or teaching, but we know for ourselves, oh, that was suffering, it was caused by this kind of holding on or this kind of identification, and we can let it go. So we know for ourselves it gives us confidence. This is insight. This is why we call this insight practice. We see for ourselves, this suffering, the cause of this suffering. And we understand it. And in that understanding, there's some relaxing releasing that happens. So we turn to suffering. We don't deny suffering. And this in and of itself, I mean, for many of us, when we hear this as a teaching, we go, yeah, right on. You know, not, let's not pretend. We don't live in the advertising world where, you know, if we have the right car or drink the right beer, we'll all be happy. doesn't exist. Life is hard, even if basically things are okay. I mean, for all of us, to some level, we're blessed. To be, have the wherewithal, the resources, the conditions to come and practice here, can't deny it. I'm sure there's a huge amount of suffering in this room. I know that to be true. All of you, as I said, have suffering in your lives. Deep and immediate suffering, long-term suffering, but also some blessings. But that doesn't diminish the difficulty of just living a life. Just keep trying to keep a life together. Sky mentioned in the opening... I lead a program called DPP, Dedicated Practitioners Program. actually led this round with Temple, who's away tonight, but he's been part of this program. It's a two-year program, five retreats, um, very interactive, so they're not in silence. We're engaged, and we're discussing, and we're inquiring, and we're giving teachings. And, a lot of sangha gets formed, and we try to cover all the aspects of the Buddha's teachings and really apply them to life. So we have a whole retreat we call worldly dhammas where we talk about you know, uh, relationships and livelihood and money and and sexuality and, and all the aspects of living a, a lay life and practicing the dhamma. And we always try to have a session on creativity because that's also important, to have that sense of aliveness in our um, in the possibilities of creativity. And for one of these programs, we had Norman Fisher come. He's a Zen priest and poet, very uh, wonderful man, very funny. And he had us do poetry. And it was one of those poetry exercises where, you know, he'd say, so write, I can't even remember what, write, you know, four lines about this. Now put the last line first, toss out the second and third lines, move the fourth line up, and now write three more lines and now, toss those two lines. and by you know after about 20 minutes you like you didn't care you were just moving it all around and it was so freeing and a number of people got and a lot of people got really high from you know that sense of just unleash you know we all think I can't write poetry you know I'm terrible so it was very uh, enlivening it was great but at the end he said this it was so wise he said it's this is his parting words to us it's hard being a human being There's a lot to it, there really is. So let's all agree to accept the reality that we're not going to be able to do a very good job of this. There's just too much to do. Isn't it a relief to know it's not going to work out? (laughs) So you're not going to get it right, you're not going to get it perfect. The worst possible outcome of my saying these things today would be for everyone to walk out of the room and think, Oh, God, now i got to take up writing poetry. i got to brush my teeth every day. got to go to the cleaners. My clothes are dirty. I've got my family. I've got children. I've got aging parents. I'm aging. i got to go to the doctor's appointments. And now i got to do art on top of all that? How am I going to do that? Well, don't worry. Just remember, there's no hope. <laughs> You're not going to be able to get it all done. It's not going to work out. But the important thing is, despite this and recognizing and embracing this reality, don't worry about finishing the job or doing it perfectly because it's not going to happen. But start. You see, start and continue. This is the thing. You can really trust that if you start and if you will continue with commitment, that will be enough. That will be enough. So we bring this this sense to it of, yes, life is difficult, and we connect and we engage. That's what we're here for to do that. The Buddha said a lot about dukkha and all the different ways that we experience it. Many lists of different kinds of dukkha, but in the Four Noble Truths, he talks about three particular kinds of dukkha dukkha dukkha, which is just your ordinary, everyday kind of dukkha, viparinama dukkha, the dukkha of change, and sankhara dukkha, the dukkha of conditioned things. Dukkha dukkha, that's just saying dukkha is dukkha, you know, suffering is painful. It's, it's, as I said, your ordinary, everyday suffering. The Buddha said, birth is Dukkha. Aging is Dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are Dukkha. Not getting what you want is Dukkha. Getting what you don't want is Dukkha. Being separated from what you love is Dukkha. This is Dukkha. We know this, right? We recognize this. And it includes all of the ways our body and mind can struggle and suffer you know, through all of the ways it can go wrong. You, you probably already have, you know, especially as you get to a certain age, all, you know all the ways a body can go wrong through injury, through illness, through just aging. And then you multiply that by all the people you love, your friends, your colleagues, you know, all of this kind of dukkha. And then you know, and the rest of the world, all of the beings, have this kind of dukkha, this kind of suffering. And so that's the obvious kinds of dukkha, of suffering. But there can be, it can happen in these very subtle ways that impact us. I had this experience the other day. It's, it's a very simple example, but again, because I was reflecting about dukkha, I just thought, oh yeah, even this is dukkha. So I had a day where I didn't have to get up at a certain time and I'd had a good night's sleep. So, you know, one of those nice waking up where you wake up, you feel refreshed, but you don't have to jump out of bed. So I just thought, oh, this is pleasant. Oh, this is ple-, You know, in the mind, yes, this is pleasant. You know, I don't have to get up. I don't have a huge agenda for today. I'm just lying in bed. It's warm, it's comfortable. And as I often do, you know, I, I meditate, you know, I just bring the awareness into the body notice what's happening, and then I saw very quickly the mind would get agitated because it will create its to-do list, even if it's small. And I had significant things to do preparing for this retreat, the usual stuff of helping to run Spirit Rock, you know, a thousand emails to go through, and the mind latching onto that. That was unpleasant. And so I said, don't pay attention to that. Just come back into the body. That's pleasant. Lying here, soft, warm, comfortable, Mindfulness of the body, oh, is getting a little full. That's not pleasant, it's unpleasant. Don't pay attention to that, pay attention. Pressure points, I'm lying here, you know, for a while. And it was interesting to see the only way I could convince myself that this was pleasant was by disconnecting a little, kind of floating above the experience, because if I actually paid attention, there was unpleasantness in it. And I really saw how this is a strategy we've been, it, it, it's been successful for us, this little bit of disconnection, this floatiness, so we can kind of be above the suffering. And that mindfulness brings us into a direct experience of suffering. And again, not like this is bad news, or who'd want to be mindful then? It's suffering. But it's a training because we will, inept, disconnection isn't a fail safe strategy. At some point, we'll have some experience that we'll, we won't be able to deny, float above, disconnect, but we, we've trained ourselves to do that. And I really saw how that, that was a strategy that I was using and that to come into the moment was more immediate, was more powerful. This also includes, this area of Dukkha Dukkha includes the second arrow. This is what I started to talk about at the beginning where we cause most of our own suffering. Sylvia's line, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. The suffering optional is a second arrow. The first arrow is whatever the impact is of literally a physical pain, illness, grief, loss. The second arrow is the mind that goes, no, no, no. Why me? I don't like this. It shouldn't be happening. It's not fair. It's someone else's fault. Uh, you know what are all the stories we tell about why this shouldn't be happening to me? It, you know this resistance, this rejection of experience. This is the second arrow because we we, we can't open to the suffering, so we want to blame and resist and deny and strategize around. I love Byron Katie. Do you know Byron Katie? She, has, she, she does something she calls The Work and her book is called Loving What Is. So she's very fierce on just getting people to accept the truth, even if it's difficult, even if it's suffering. And she'll say something like, you know, you're sitting here saying it shouldn't be like it is. Honey, you know why it, why it is the way it is? No. <laughs> How does she say it? Honey, it is the way it is. You know, it's basically just, this is the truth. She says, don't try to deny it. This is how it is. Turn to it, face it. Don't try to make a story out of it. I was, um, have a student I work with, I've um, been talking to her for a long time, and she's really very wise, but having a really difficult family situation of addiction and, and challenges. You know, in, in her, it's her son, and... Um, You know, she's done everything that that a wise parent would try to do, and nothing has worked, and it's so painful. And she said how she can see her mind going to, you know, I'm a good person. I've done all, you know, everything they say to do, and it's still not working. And the mind wanting to go to, why me? Why is this happening to me? And then she saw that moment of insight where she just said, why not me? You know, this happens to families, families struggle, people suffer. And it was such a powerful insight. It was still difficult. You know, the suffering was still there, but she wasn't objecting to it. it was so important. I also recently uh, read Eckhart Tolle's book, New Earth. It's been out for a while, but it was really very helpful to look at the way we create suffering through our thoughts. I mean, it's a, main way we really create suffering is lots of different teachings on it, but this is one thing that Eckhart Tolle said. One of the ego's many erroneous assumptions, one of its many deluded thoughts is, I should not have to suffer. Sometimes the thought gets transferred to someone close to you, my child should not have to suffer. That thought itself lies at the root of suffering. Suffering has a noble purpose, the evolution of consciousness and the burning up of the ego. As long as you resist suffering, it is a slow process because the resistance creates more ego to burn up. When you accept suffering, however, there is an acceleration of that process which is brought about by the fact that you suffer consciously, with mindfulness. You can accept suffering for yourself, or you can accept it for someone else, such as your child or parent. In the midst of conscious suffering, there is already transmutation. The fire of suffering becomes the light of consciousness." So it's really this possibility of transformation in the opening to suffering. in this, uh, the description of the kinds of suffering, they get progressively more subtle. So dukkha, dukkha, you know, I could talk a lot about all the different forms, but I think we know what I'm talking about. Next one, a little more subtle, viparinama dukkha. This is the dukkha of change, of unreliability, of inconstancy. And again, we know why we suffer, how we suffer. Around that, it's the inherent unsatisfactoriness of trying to hold on to things that are changing, that have changed, that will change, that will keep changing. Even pleasant states are included in that. You know, it, no, I hold on. Can't. You know, it's changing. We had a beautiful day today, right? Where's it gone? It's gone. Whatever you know, beauty, happiness there was a moment ago. It's gone. Yet we're always looking to hold on, looking for permanency, and so we suffer. Many of you were anticipating this retreat, perhaps looking forward to it, right? Then it arises, arrives, now you've probably had some thoughts, when is it gonna end? You know, <laughs> as we get into the midst of it. And we do that constantly, it's the leaning forward and things are changing as we're experiencing them. I had a, f- a friend tell me the other day the story of going to visit her mother-in-law. She went with her husband, mother-in-law saying, you know, when are you gonna come visit? When are you come visit an elderly woman, uh, you living in Florida or somewhere. So they said, we're coming, we're coming, made the trip, long trip. Arrive and stay with the mother-in-law in this very small apartment. Mother-in-law doesn't like to go out very much. Doesn't want them to go out very much. So they're kind of knocking around in this little apartment, and it's very unpleasant for all of them. I mean, even the mother-in-law isn't having a great time. Um, but they, you know, they're like. But she starts as soon as they arrive, saying, "When are you going to visit next?" And after all, I say, "Mom, we're here now." she goes, I know, but it's actually not much fun. What I like is looking forward to you visiting. That's where I'm happiest. And how often do we do that? You know, it's this expectation of the thing out there, looking for the happiness in something that's out there. And it's always changing. What we start to see in, in the Viparinama Dukkha, if there's a pleasant birth, that is pleasant experience, the death is suffering you know we want it to stay and it, it's going it's gone if it's an unpleasant birth if we're not happy then the the death is happiness but either way is suffering right i mean this is what the buddha keeps telling us to look at look at what's true in your own experience and especially if we're attached there's even more suffering The last of uh, the kinds of dukkha is even more subtle, Sankara dukkha, the dukkha of conditioned states. I mean, it's kind of similar to Viparinama dukkha, but it gets really deep. It's like everything, everything is constructed. Everything is conditioned in this temporal world, in this relative world. Everything is unreliable. Everything, yes, it's gonna change. It's constructed, it's made up, it's conditioned. And we, if we start to open to this kind of dukkha, we can feel the effort that it takes. It was kind of like Norman Fisher was talking about to get keep everything together, mind and body, a job, a family, it's like, all of this doing and effort to keep constructing and putting things together. And the nature of things is to disintegrate, right? You know, it just, that's what happens to things. You you keep building it up and it keeps disintegrating. You build it up, it's, it's disintegrating. And so we can start to feel into just all the effort we put into construction and constructing and conditioning and all of this. They've just come out in the last few days with a stress study. Apparently, it was a really major study, a lot of people, maybe thousands of people. And they discovered that the, by age group, the age group that's having the most stress are called the millennials. So I don't know what they are, 19s to 30 or you know, 20 to 30-year-olds or something. Uh, and they, you know, they interviewed some and they were saying, oh yeah, it's hard, hard to get a job, I've got student loans, I you know, have to live with my family because I can't afford anything else. Sometimes it was there's so many choices I don't know what to do, but th- they were having the most stress, and then it went went down from there. And I really saw, oh yeah, because they have to construct the life. They have to put all that effort to, to put in that Sankara dukkha, create all that stuff that's so difficult to put together. So Sankara dukkha is just recognizing this fragility, this inherent fragility in all of our experience and everyone's experience. And again, that tenderness that can come as we open to that. So in talking about suffering, this kind of suffering, you know, it It doesn't mean, and I don't want to imply, that life is miserable, you know, it's all gloom and doom and, uh, you know, it's all going to hell in a handbasket and uh, no hope or anything. This really is meant to be a pointing about the end of suffering, but just to be kind of realistic about what our actual felt experience is. Because you can have all the pieces in play. You know, you've got it all. And maybe you don't feel, feel you don't have you don't have it all. That's suffering too. But even if, you know, things are going well, relationship or family or career or whatever, and still there's that sense, as I said earlier, of something not quite fulfilled, not quite right. Um, Some yearning that's still there (laughs) deep in us. All these existential questions, you know, what's life about? Why am I here? What happens when I die? What's the purpose of a life? All of this can cause this kind of unease in us. This is dukkha. So we start to look at, you know, the the effort that we put in, in in this realm, Sankara, dukkha, the effort it takes to try to be happy. All the constructions that we have to put together. Or even on a deep meditative level, I can remember being on a retreat, long retreat, the mind getting very still inside, long sittings, and then opening my eyes And just the world and form and the impact of it, it's like, oh. And don't you sometimes think how much stuff there is in the world? You know, you just have to, I don't go to Walmart very often, but I mean, it's like, and then that's like, it's Walmart store 3065. It's like, oh my God, so much stuff. It feels a burden of all this stuff. And, you know, and how we're just lost in this world of possessions. The Buddha had a very different view. You know, most, we've been trained, oh, get that stuff, that's happiness. Hold on to it, make it permanent, try to. The Buddha said about the world and stuff, it disintegrates and therefore it is called the world. It disintegrates and therefore it is called the world. Now what disintegrates? The eye disintegrates, the ear disintegrates, form disintegrates, sight, sounds disintegrate. It disintegrates, therefore it is called the world. We think it's solid, therefore it's called the world. But he says, no, you know, the world is disintegrating. It's, it's conditioned, it's, it's always changing. And so he invites us not to run away from that truth or try to strategize around it, but to understand it. He says, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of which keeps you bound. What is that one thing? The truth of suffering. So he says, turn and look for yourself. Don't try to strategize around suffering. Avoid it through distractions or denials or addictions, drugs of all different kinds, even the drug of entertainment and media and constant interaction that doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. We're here because we know it doesn't work. So we have to look in a different direction. We have to come to some deep understanding of this truth of suffering for ourselves, some acceptance of this truth, because it's inevitable. Whatever suffering we're feeling now, future suffering, suffering, will come. And any resistance, fear, rejection will just create more suffering. So our practice is to understand suffering and to be able to say, yes, suffering has been understood. And it doesn't mean perhaps, probably, that we're standing where the Buddha stood, where he said, yes, I've understood suffering to the point where I'm not suffering anymore. But he said that was possible. It's possible for all of us. But it might mean that we don't add to our suffering. Or if we do, which we probably will, we recognize it sooner. We see what we're doing. And the wisdom is there to release, to let go. And we also, it also invites us into the tenderness of compassion because we see suffering is just a fact of life our suffering your suffering and that tenderness suffering is i mean compassion is not a suffering state if we can turn to the compassion it really does open our hearts we start to realize as we say in the metta practice all beings want to be happy all beings don't want to not suffer we see the universality of that We understand that. We're not unique. We're in in that together with them. But that suffering is woven through any life, animal life, creatures, birds, and the oceans. There is this suffering, old age, sickness, and death, inevitable for all of us, loss, stress, fear, and worry, woven through our life, my life, your life. But as we open to that with compassion, there's a way of standing in that that doesn't cause more suffering and actually leads us to the end of suffering. Ajahn Sumedho, who I quoted in the beginning, is saying all we need is the Four Noble Truths. He He actually said when he started his practice in Thailand and he didn't speak much Thai and it was very difficult conditions, all he had was a little booklet on the Four Noble Truths, and he just read it over and over again. So it's, it's been important and woven through all his life of practice and teaching. He's written a beautiful a small text on the Four Noble Truths, and this is from that text about the First Noble Truth and understanding it. He says, With mindfulness we are willing to bear with the whole of life, with the excitement and the boredom, the hope and the despair, the pleasure and the pain, the fascination and the weariness, the beginning and the ending, the birth and the death. We are willing to accept the whole of it in the mind rather than absorb into just the pleasant and suppress the unpleasant. The process of insight is the going to dukkha, looking at dukkha, admitting dukkha, recognizing dukkha in all its forms, then you are no longer just reacting in the habitual way of indulgence or suppression. And because of that, you can bear with suffering more. You can be patient with it. So again, this turning to, and we start to have confidence in our ability to be with suffering, to bear suffering, to open to suffering with with any experience, even the very difficult ones. The mindfulness gives us the tools of presence that enable us with this tender, kind attention to say this, this is suffering, this is hard, but I can open to it. I don't have to turn away, hide it, deny it, you know, judge it. I can be with this, with gentleness, with kindness, with acceptance. And there's a truth to that, and we see the freedom that's to be found right there, right there in the suffering, as we stand under the waterfall of suffering, fully accepting, not abstractly, but this, and this, and this, and this. We accept, and then we know the truth of suffering, and it can lead us to the end of suffering. So let's just sit quietly and let the words settle. Thank you for your attention. About 35 minutes for walking and we'll come back back and uh, enjoy the blessings in life with our chant this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit